I dare say that you've probably never heard a sermon about metaphysics, probably. Um, you have, but you just didn't recognize it as metaphysics. That's the point I want to make with this thing, partly. And I know it's a big word, and it's a word, it's a word from, from the study of philosophy, which everybody says they hate. Everybody says they hate philosophy, but they've all got one. Okay? You can't live as a human being without having philosophy, without believing certain philosophy. You just don't call it by that and don't want to admit that's what it is, but it's what it is. And uh, in our day and time, everybody's got their own individual philosophy, they think, although it really isn't to go by. All of them can be classified by some historical precedent. But it's these, this is an important subject, and it goes along with some of the other things we've been saying in the last two or three months scattered out over how we got here and why things are like they are. And these lessons, of course, I, and I understand this. I won't apologize for it. I understand that they will be more valuable to some people than others. I really would like, especially for the younger people in the audience, to think about these things because you're, you're living with them and going to live with them, and so are your children. But Paul addressed the subject of philosophy and philosophers in his lifetime, Paul being a very educated man as an apostle, much more educated than all the other apostles. As an educated man, he talked to the philosophers in the Greek world. He talked to the most educated, highly trained people in the law, the philosophers of the Jews in the Sanhedrin and among the Pharisees and Sadducees. Paul addressed them. Now, the language that he used and the way he expressed himself uh, was in philosophical on a philosophical basis, but not always on philosophical terms. But I think that one of the best sermons, one of the greatest sermons in all of the New Testament is found here in the book of Acts chapter 17. We referred to this recently, and I know we did, and that's okay. I'm kind of trying to tie these things together with you. But this is an address that Paul made in the city of Athens, the center of Greek learning and the center of Greek philosophy in the first century. And it had been so for a long time before Paul got there in probably A.D. 50 or 60 or so. It had been this way for a long time. a place where the teachings of men like Aristotle and Socrates, who are still taught today and who were philosophers and who addressed the very same issues I've been talking about, Socrates and Aristotle addressed those issues at the time long before Christ, 400 to 300 years before Christ. And Paul addressed some of these issues in this sermon to these men, but although he didn't couch it in strictly philosophical terms. But the issues he discussed were exactly about the subject of metaphysics. That's what they were about. And so Paul stood and outside of Palestine, you know, I've been to Palestine, Judy and I have, and Karen, others here have. We went on our trips, Fred and the McNabs went with us, and Karen, uh, we were in the same group. They didn't go with me. We were all in the same group. And we saw many wonderful things in Palestine. Outside of that, this is one of the places that I would like to go in my lifetime, if I doubt that I ever will. To stand here, on, and you can stand there where Paul probably was when he gave this address. My brother was there recently. One of my brothers was there recently. And stood there at the Areopagus. Now, Areopagus... Areopagus is also called in the King James, I think, Mars Hill. Mars being one of the Greek gods and Greek gods of war is also called the Hill of Mars. So it's the Areopagus. But he says, men of Athens, 
he had been walking up the way to this top of the place where the philosophers gathered up there. He knew this. He went up there to speak to them or to see them. And he saw along the way as he went the statues of the various gods of the Greeks and Romans on this way up the hill with their various inscriptions. So when he gets there, Paul says, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things you are very religious. King James uses the word superstitious. doesn't mean what you think it means. It means uh, the worship of gods. It uh, basically means the worship of spiritual things. And that's what Paul was saying. Now, they were called superstitions by the time of King James because these false gods were viewed as demons and so forth by a lot of people. That's not how Paul is addressing this. He's saying, I see that you're a very religious people. The truth is, almost all of humanity has always been very religious. I believe modern Americans are very religious. Modern Europeans are very religious. They just worship different gods than their ancestors did. But people are very religious. They, they will turn to worshiping crystals, and I don't know what all. The, uh, the, well, I'll tell you what i got coming up here. Drive up and down US 1 here, and you will see the new worship centers. They're places that dispense marijuana. You think it's an accident? This one place is called True Leave, meaning like believe. It's called True Leave. And what's the one up on US 1 and Midway Road? Replace that gas station. It's called The Sanctuary. Why would you make a marijuana dispensing house called and call it the sanctuary if you didn't have a religious meaning behind that? You can reach a higher level of consciousness and worship and find yourself in in THC and in drugs. That's where that's that's modern religion to a lot of people. If you begin to notice so many of these, one of them's called one leaf, like one blood. The one, see, so now marijuana is a symbol of unity of human beings. It's the one thing that you need. Well, what is the one thing that you need in truth? It's not marijuana. Okay, but that's what's being put forward. So when you drive around, you notice these places. Notice what they're called, and you'll begin to see. I know you think I'm crazy, but once again, I'm telling you, there's something to this. Judy's smiling. She knows I'm crazy. All right. Paul says, I perceive you're very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one to whom you you worship without knowing or in ignorance, him I proclaim to you. I've heard it, I don't want to spend too long on this, because I've talked about it before. I don't think he was saying, you just put up this one as a catch-all. We worship all these gods. Oh, just in case we missed one, we'll put one up to the unknown God. I don't think that's what this means. I know a lot of people do. I think this means to the unknowable God, we would say. The one that can't be known. The Greeks and Romans and Buddhists, all these people that worship many gods, even the Canaanites believed that behind these gods that they worship, there was a force or a God that was bigger than all of them that they couldn't know. He was hidden from them. And they didn't worship him because they couldn't know about him. They worshiped the things they could see and feel, the trees, the forests, the mountains, the volcanoes, you know, war, even their own human spirit. They worshiped animals. They worshiped things they could see and touch, but they wouldn't venture about this one that was behind all of that. And that was what Paul's saying here is, I'm going to talk to you about that one that you say is unknown because I know him. Let me tell you about him because you can know him and I know him already. And so he already had these men's interest. 
when he said this to them at this point. And so he says, God, who made the world and everything in it, which they would not have understood, but that's a metaphysical statement about the way things are. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. And there's temples right there where they were standing. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands. By the way, this modern spelling of worship without two P's is an abomination. But anyway, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made us, us human beings, from one blood, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth as determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. He is making so many metaphysical statements about the world and the universe and the known facts that are there and about human beings as such. This is a philosophical statement. So that they should seek the Lord, all these nations, in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. You think he's unknown and unknowable. He's not far from you. For in him we live and move and have our being. This God who's out there that you think is hidden from view, that you can't understand, you're down here on earth struggling with volcanoes and diseases and you have to offer up your children to stop this stuff. God is right here with you. It's in him on this earth that we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. He quotes one of their modern, their contemporary poets, who I forgot the fellow's name. Now you probably find in the margin of your Bible. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we humans, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all men everywhere to repent, because He has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. By the man whom he has ordained, and he has given the assurance of this thing, of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard that word of the resurrection, many of them mocked him and others walked away because the Greeks just did not believe it was possible for there to be a miracle or a resurrection. Just like a lot of your contemporaries, when they hear the word miracle or that a miracle occurred, they would stop listening to you because they, they've already assumed before you ever start talking, no miracle could ever happen, has never happened ever. There's no such thing as prophecy. They already assume that. They won't listen to any evidence to prove that because they assume it couldn't be. Some of these Greeks were the same way, and that's why they rejected Paul at this point. Now, I think most of what Paul says there is a philosophical statement to these philosophers about the nature of the world, and he's trying to get across to them, your worldview is incorrect. And if you would understand the correct view of the world, then you could be make progress in your understanding. He's making a philosophical statement to them. And, and what what is this metaphysics then? Well, meta means uh, beyond, and physics is talking about nature, the natural world in Greek. The word metaphysics means beyond nature. So is there, a, it's an understanding of things that go beyond nature itself. We'll come back to that in a moment. But the encyclopedia says metaphysics is the branch of philosophy that studies the fundamental nature of reality, which which could it, see reality to your modern person, your contemporaries means just the physical world that you can touch, taste, and feel. But reality in in reality, reality includes a lot more than the physical. But it discusses 
It's the study of the fundamental nature of reality, the first principles of being, what it means to be, and identity and change, space and time, causality, necessity, and possibility. Now, if I were to break all of those down, I could spend a long time talking about each one of those and how it, how it, all of those intersect with the issues of modern society. And all the stuff you're seeing about sexual things and all the foolishness going on, we would call it, all of those are philosophical problems involving the very things it's talking about here. And you even see identity right there in the middle of that change. You see. What is a person? Is a, are you what you were when you were born? You're what you are. You what you say you are. Are you going to be the same person when you die? What is something? Is it, is something whatever we call it or is some, do things have a real nature that can't be altered by whatever we say about them? Those are modern street level issues today. But they really are philosophical questions. Another source says metaphysics studies questions relating to what is, what it is for something to exist. What does it mean for somebody to exist? You, you know, if, if you went to college in, in my lifetime, and a lot of times in high school, you were and you took any kind of course on on thought or logic or rationality or or philosophy, you were taught that a large portion of the, of the intellectuals in the world do not believe that we really exist. They will challenge you as a college student as to whether you actually exist or whether you're just a figment of somebody else's imagination. In fact, some of these prominent people today that everybody looks up to say that all we are is a simulation in in an alien video game. The aliens have a video game running that they're in control of and and all of reality is we're just a simulation running. Now these are people that say they're smarter than you. Notice how I phrase that. But that's a metaphysical question. What is existence? Do you really exist? Does the world exist? Now, other people would say that the most fund and many important philosophers, actual important philosophers have said one way or another that the real question, the most important question is why do things exist instead of not exist? <clears throat> Which is true. <clears throat> why, why is there something instead of just nothing? And once you decide, you think the Bible deals with that? Why is there something instead of nothing? It's the first thing God says to human beings in the first verse of the Bible. Why something exists instead of nothing? Oh, I don't go for that philosophy. Well, you read Genesis 1, you're right in the middle of knee-deep in philosophy of why something exists instead of nothing exists. What's it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so it deals with things like what there is, what actually is here, what's reality, what is real, is anything real, and then what is here, what's it really like? What we're dealing with today are those questions. And, and this transgender stuff, for example, is just one manifestation of Trump people in the modern world answering those two questions right there. <clears throat> what there is. Is there a male and a female? And if they are, what are they like? How do you know? You see. And we get caught up in all the other stuff with that, politics of it, but it's a philosophical question. Does the Bible say anything about those issues? Well, the Bible says a lot about those issues. And so we ought to understand that we're dealing, we're dealing in churches and in sermons and preaching and you're dealing in your Bible study with the very same thing that Aristotle and Socrates wrestled with and all the other philosophers down through time, all the, all the pagans 
uh, in, in tribes in Africa or South America or wherever they were, North American, they all were trying to figure out the same things, coming up with similar answers, actually, to those questions. And the people who were following the Hebrew prophets and Revelation, both in Israel and later in other parts of the world, we're wrestling with the same issues. People today, as modern as they think they are, as much as they think they've thrown the Bible away, they're still wrestling with the same exact thing. Because it's the nature of the world. Now, because so many people have a negative impression of philosophy, I want to talk about this passage. And I don't have a, I don't have a positive impression of philosophy. I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you that it, it's what it is. And, when you read much of what you read, you know, it's, if you have trouble sleeping, you can try reading Immanuel Kant if you'd like, and, and people like that. It'll help you sleep. And, and you have to parse every word and every sentence. And, and you'll realize right away that just because you have a great education, very smart, doesn't mean you really know anything. Get over the idea that because people have degrees and college degrees, education, that they actually know something. They know something about some little thing, perhaps, whatever it might be specific to their field, but they don't really know anything about what really matters oftentimes. Not all of them, of course. Some are thoughtful. And there are many thoughtful people that come to different conclusions than, than us. But, but the point is, here's what Paul says to the Colossians. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit or vain deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, remember, Paul was talking to philosophers and told them this when he said this very same thing. For in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. You don't need to understand the worldly philosophers to understand what is true, because you are complete in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that everything worldly philosophers have said is wrong or that has no value. But you don't need it to be complete in Christ because in Christ, in the same, in the same book of Colossians in chapter 3, says in Christ, I think it's about verse 8, that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures, there's none left, that are not hidden in Christ in knowledge about him. But that includes the nature of the world and all things about that that we want to talk about. Now, what Paul, this philosophy that Paul's talking about here, and most commentators would probably agree with this, is probably not talking so much about Greek philosophy, but about the Hebrew philosophers and, and the people who were trying to uh, come along and uh, use Hebrew philosophy, which is a little bit different than Greek philosophy, to lure these Christians away from sound thinking. And they would make philosophical arguments why Christ could not have been born in the flesh to a virgin based on philosophy, not on the actual history of the fact. And so he says you're being deceived by these people. And the philosophy he's talking about is when you're willing to follow the traditions of men according to the basic things of the world and not according to Christ. So as long as you want to be educated and understand the world through the lens of the scripture. You can be, you're okay being educated and understanding things. But when you throw that away, you will end up being deceived and you'll be living according to the traditions of men. So philosophy is good, but the Bible is philosophical. Just depends on where you start from. So metaphysics then is the science of determining the real nature of things. 
thus allowing people to perceive the meaning, structure, and principles of whatever exists. So when you understand what the Bible says about the true nature of things, then you have true understanding about how things are, the structure of the world, what things really mean, and and whatever principles that exist, not only in the physical things, but in the spiritual world too. Because whatever exists here includes not only the material... See, we are so swallowed up in materialist thinking in our generation, our time... All of us are who ever went to a public school and lit, watched the radio and TV. I know Ed isn't because he doesn't watch TV, but the rest of us are influenced by what we see and hear around us. We're living in a sea. When I think of whatever exists, you automatically think the physical world. Is that all that exists? Not by a long shot. It may be the least important of what exists, the physical world. So true metaphysics speaks to what you can't see, what is actually there that's beyond the physical realm. With this foundation, it's easy to establish uncertainties about things, thus facilitate unity and communication. You know, if you live in a world where there's no certainties, there's no way for you to have any unity with anybody that you know. The only way you can have unity or communication with people that you know and, and actually love them is when there is something that's certain that you both agree on and know together. Love and unity involve knowing things together and agreeing on those things. That's the extent to which you can have unity. And when you live in a world like we do today where everybody's being told the only thing that really matters is what you want and you're the only one that can determine reality. You get to determine everything. You get to decide who you are, what you are, what you're going to be. And your individual interpretation of that is all that there is. Is it any wonder that we're fragmented in a million pieces and we don't have any communication? Well, you can't have anything else but disunity and disruption. The only way you have unity in anything is when people can agree on something that they all take, they all believe the same on. The Bible gives us that. The Bible is the foundation of true human unity because it tells us what we can all agree on. That's Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, as God's Son, and then whatever God says about the world, and both seen and unseen, we all agreed on that. Now we have a chance at unity. And that's why you and I can have unity as brothers and sisters, because we agree on those things. And we keep trying to hammer out the areas where we don't, but we have certainty about that, and therefore we can have unity and brotherhood and communication. We can actually talk to each other. People in the world can't even talk to each other, really. You know, you all don't realize, I've told you before, but there is a huge rift going on right now. It's been going on for a long time. Gays and lesbians hate each other. That's been true for two or three generations that we know about. Gays and lesbians do not like each other. They hate each other. They don't get along in any way. The only thing that brings them together is when they think us heterosexuals don't like them. And the transgender movement has brought them together somewhat because they both hate the transgenders, the T's. There's an LGB movement that's gaining strength again in around the world in Europe and the United States that throws out the T because those two groups of people don't even, can't agree, those three groups of people can't even agree on what's real. Therefore, they can't get along with each other. It's only in their opposition to Christianity or other any other norm that they can agree but that's not enough to hold people together. You know, everybody just being against the same thing can hold you together for a while, but it won't for very long. 
And that's what's going on around us. You just have to realize. So God is working in this. It might take a generation or two more, but it'll eventually all disintegrate because there's no real basis of unity in these movements. They're all based on their own reality and they can't ever get along. So modern man has a big problem with metaphysics. In this area of what is real, how we know what's real, how we know uh, who we are, we have a big problem. One fellow, John Horvath, says, indeed, modern man seeks to dominate nature, not have dominion over it and use nature for the good purpose of helping other people, but we seek to dominate it in a way that was never intended to be dominated, not to understand it. Modern man wants to bend nature to the will of humanity. So nature says there are two sexes. Modern man says, no, I don't want that. I want multi, I want an infinite number of sexes. I want 40 sexes. I want 50 sexes. And I want to, I want to change from today to tomorrow or the next day what I am. So we try to bend it. Its philosophers seek, see metaphysical definitions and categories as restrictive. So you can't ever really define something and say this is that because once you define something of this is that, that excludes everything else. Every definition you give something excludes all the stuff that's not that. And people don't like that. That's too negative. That's too restrictive. So we can you think of an important word that hasn't been redefined in, in our lifetime? How about love? Has love been... Does that mean the same thing it used to in the Bible? Love? Well, what does love mean? I bet most of you couldn't really give me a stable, sound definition of the word love unless you use something in the Bible because society doesn't even agree what love is. How about family? Hillary Clinton tried, Clinton tried to tell us years ago that family wasn't about mothers and fathers and grandparents. That it, it takes a village. Everybody is family. And that means what it really means is the federal government is your family. And it doesn't matter if it's formed in your own thing by people that are related to you or not related to you, people that the state appoints over you, it doesn't matter. Now there's a sense in which that should be true that I don't have to have somebody just by blood relative before I'll take care of them and love them. But that's not what the word family means. It's been destroyed. And so what does family mean? It means nothing. Eventually it begins to mean nothing. And so it becomes like that word inconceivable in the movie. I do not think this word means what you think it means. Okay? Because it's used in so many different ways that obviously aren't correct, and yet no one has the courage to say it. We're living in the time of the emperor's new clothes, where nobody can say the emperor has no clothes on. Because what, what are clothes? Oh, that's just what you say are clothes. Okay. I'm going to have to pause for a second. I don't know how this is going to work. In fact, maybe it'll work. I've got to plug my computer in for some reason. It's a metaphysical problem. Apparently, I didn't charge it well last night. Okay, anyway. So man doesn't like to be restricted by definitions of things, and so he makes up his own definition. Modern man limits his understanding of what things are to, so he can dominate. Industrial society needs logical and stable systems based on nature of things. So we have pretty, we, we like science, quote unquote, because we can define things and we can use science to 
make ourselves live better and have more better lifestyles. We can dominate things that way. But beyond that, anything more profound than science, no. Can't talk about what science means. Can't talk about anything beyond that. But we are, we have this industrial sense of reality. And so domination then leads to a desire to determine what things are based on personal subjectivity. It is what I say it is. I am what I say I am. Now, my point is, I don't, we, we get discouraged about this because we think this is going to go on forever. I'll, I may be dead, but I'll predict to you that this cannot go on forever because it doesn't work. And you know why it doesn't work? Because it doesn't reflect reality. When you go around living in a way that doesn't reflect reality, you eventually run into a brick wall or jump off a, or fall off a cliff. Okay? I can pretend that that ledge isn't there. I can believe the ledge isn't there. But since it's there, I'm eventually going to fall off that if I believe that long enough. Because that's what reality is. So modern man and his desire to be God soon runs into the reality of the real God, the way the real God made the world, the way the real God made him, and eventually all unravels. And then civilizations fall apart. Societies fall apart. Individual humans fall apart. This is the tragedy of it. What we're seeing now, and are going to continue to see as time goes on, that individual people that you know and love are going to fall apart because they're living in a world that isn't real. Because they've been told, sold a metaphysical bill of goods. So let's take a few of these metaphysical questions. We've got a few minutes left. We'll take a few of these metaphysical questions. One of them, one of them that, science, that people have been trying to answer since the time of the Greeks. Now I've got my keys wrapped up in the microphone. This could be interesting. It's a metaphysical problem. <laughs> Is, is there a first cause? Is Why is there something instead of nothing? And if there is, well, you and I know this, everything that happens has a cause, and everything that happens has a cause, and that cause has a cause, and that cause has a cause. This is where the world, science is based on this. This causality problem. In fact, philosophers spend a lot of time talking about causality, different kinds of causality, and it's called sometimes contingency, that some things can only exist if other things exist first, and so forth. Man, man, for example, is called a contingent being because man cannot exist by himself. He has to exist in the contingency of the world around him and, and maybe as Christians, God's creating it. So these, these are things been wrestled with by, from the time of the Greeks onward. What's the Bible say about this first cause? Well, the Bible starts off with this. Here's the first cause. In the beginning, even puts a time on it, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Genesis 1 and John 1 here. And he, Christ, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Where's life come from? Where's man come from? Where's everything come from? Well, nothing has been made that was made without Christ. And that happened in the beginning is when Christ made everything. Now, there's so much in those verses. That's, that's a philosophical statement. We don't call it that, but that's what that is. 
And, and if you're a Christian and you understand that that's true, and you can, we could examine this for endlessly examine what this means, both scientifically and philosophically, what this statement means. It's extremely important. It, it solves a lot of problems for you. It sets you on a course in your thinking that, that is different than other courses you could take in a profound way. This is why Christians are at such profound odds with the modern world. Because the foundations of what we believe that come from the scriptures and from this very act of creation are so different from where all your fellow men are coming from that the conclusions end up being different. And they're diametrically opposite of each other. They cannot be reconciled. They can only be debated and either believed or disbelieved, but there are consequences for both things. And so this is a a metaphysical... Is there a first cause? Well, in the Bible, yes, there is. It's very clearly explained... And the, and the results of that, there being a first cause, are something that we have to accept as reality. Now, I think it's also a scientific statement that there has to be a first cause. And that first cause, as we're going to see in some future lessons, has to be a personal cause. The first cause cannot be immaterial, like gravity or nuclear attraction or whatever the case may be. That cannot be the first cause. Because... Whatever the first cause is has to explain what's really here. What's really here is that universe of gravity and nuclear reactions and energy and all that. But there's something else also here that must be explained, and that's the personality of human beings. We are not just... uh Uh-oh, my die again. We are not just a collection of atoms. We're more than that. And that has to be explained, and that can only be explained... By a personal and infinite God. That's the only way that that can be explained. We've talked about this before, and I want to come, I'll come back to it, I guess, at some other time, but, um, let me, hang on a second, I'm trying to get the display back up here. Alright. Thank you for letting me know. Another another philosophical question. Do we have free will? This is a big one. The Greeks talked endlessly about this. John Calvin got involved in that discussion, as well as Aquinas before him, even religiously. And it's a discussion today. There are numerous scientific articles in the last few years about the subject of human free will. Even B.F. Skinner, the famous scientist, did experiments showing that Basically, all of us just react to our environments around us and all of our actions are determined by external stimuli and so you can predict what things will happen. Everybody's determined. You don't really make choices. You did not choose to come here today. Everything has been aligned in in the scientific world by your genetics and your surroundings to force you to be here. You didn't make that choice. Religiously, some people have the idea religiously that God made all those choices ahead of time and you didn't choose either. You came here because God determined before the world was ever made that you would be here this morning and that I would be saying the very words I'm saying right now has all been predetermined because we don't have free will. That's what a vast number of Protestants believe, Calvinists and evangelicals, in various forms, of course, but it all comes back to that. And and your, your unbelieving friends believe the same thing. 
that your genetics and the nature of the world itself determine what you do. You don't really have a choice in this. And so that's why we have this debate about homosexuality and transgenderism, again, just to bring up the thing everybody's concerned about. It's because we're saying, well, people can't help that. So since they can't help that, they were born that way, then we just have to go along with that. Can't object to that. And, and we also are now finding out that people that want to have sex with children were born that way. They can't help it. That's where, that's where this is going. People that want to have four or five wives or husbands, well, they can't help that. They were born that way. That's just their desire. Who are you to say their desire is wrong? Well, if there's no God, I, that's a good question. You aren't anybody to say who is wrong. Because, not really wrong. Because, they don't have free will. They can't choose those things. The Bible is so against that idea. From the first page of the Bible to the last page of the Bible, probably on almost every opening I could open, I would be able to find you a passage that questions the idea that we don't have free will. We do have free will. One, Just one. I'm just going to give you one or two of these. In Deuteronomy, God sets before the Israelites what is going to happen to them. And throughout this entire chapter in Deuteronomy, he says, if you do this, this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. Constantly, that word if. Can you intelligently use the word if in a sentence with somebody that doesn't have free will? Can you really use the word if in a sentence with them? If you do this and you... Well, there's no sensible way to use that word in a sentence with somebody who doesn't have free will. It's already been predetermined. That They don't have any if about it. There's no choice. But God says to them, and many, this is one of many in this passage, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Now, there's no clearer expression in few words, that says they had a free choice to make and God recognized that choice. He set before them two alternatives and said, you choose which one you want. And he even told them the consequences of each one, each choice. Does man have free will? Yes. Now, here's the good news about free will. That means that you have choices to make, that you are a responsible creature. And that's the bad news about free will. That's why people don't like it. Because you are responsible for what you do if you have free will. That's why people have been trying to get away from free will for a long time. Because it makes them responsible for what they do. Because it's their choice. When I say people who practice sexual immorality have free will to make a change and they can choose, that's called hate speech. Because I, it's telling them, you think I'm wrong if I do the other. Well, you have a choice, but if you don't believe that, there's no there's no right or wrong about it. You don't have a choice. Are, are there any unchanging truths? Well, there are. We'll start with one here. I can think of a lot of these in the Bible, but Paul, uh, who was called to be an apostle, he says in verse two of Titus one, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began, and so forth has manifested through his preaching. There's an eternal truth. God cannot lie. And he told Paul what he wanted Paul to know, and that was expressed in the preaching that Paul gave as an apostle. 
There are many eternal truths found in the scriptures based upon the one eternal truth that God cannot lie and everything else flows from that. It all comes from the nature of God. Why things are wrong comes from God's nature which cannot change and which God cannot lie about that. You and I can lie. We can change. With us, there's no eternal truth. But with God, there is. Uh, what about space and time? You know, there's this is a big debate. Are, are we living in an alien simulation, or, or is everybody just in your own in our own minds, or what? what what's really here? Does anybody exist? Out in philosophy class, they'll challenge you. Prove that you exist. So you should hear all these freshman college students trying to prove they exist. It's interesting. So I just raised my cogito ergo sum. That's what I said. <laughs> you know what that means? It, it's Descartes' famous phrase, I think, therefore I am. That's what that means. I just did it in Latin just for fun. Uh, because Latin makes it sound much more intelligent and important. I think, therefore I am. He said the fact that I, I, I can think and I can perceive the, even the question you're asking means that I exist. Pretty good thinking, isn't it? it it's too simple for modern philosophers. So. Well, what Luke says... Here's an odd one. You can find this everywhere in the Bible. So it was that the beggar died. This is speaking of Lazarus and and the rich man. The beggar Lazarus died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments after Hades, he lifted up his eyes. This is the wrong verse. Hang on. I'll, I'll metaphysically change this. Now, the question is, what is space and time? Now, the verse is Genesis 1. <laughs> Just see if you're paying attention. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is that space and time? Well, yes. When's the time? In the beginning. Beginning of what? Of time. And he created the heavens and the earth. Is that space? Well, of course it is. And the earth was without form and Darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. But this space and time wasn't just something magically that appeared. It was all controlled by the Spirit of God hovering over it. God was in control of it, influencing the creation and in space and time. And that's an important biblical principle. It's done by a personal God who had some control. Now, now go back to this. Uh, this is the question. Um, how do things change when, which maintain their identity over time? I talked about Judy when I first met her here 48 years ago, coming up in a week or two at Tampa. Okay, when I met her, I won't go into all the details, she had short, bright blonde hair, bright blue eyes, twinkly little eyes. She was very cute. I'll not say more. Very attractive. She caught my eye immediately, even though I was with somebody else at that time. And then when I spoke to her, and she smiled at me. I said, I gotta remember this one. So that's 48 years ago. Five children living with me, working like a dog. And I still see the same things there. Are they exactly the same? Is she the same as she was? Every molecule of her body has been altered many times and changed. Every molecule of her body has been altered. And yet I know it's still her. Her spirit has changed dramatically. We talked about that this morning. That's true for all of us. And yet what I know is it's the same person. How can it be? We know this because that's how God made the world. 
But scientists question, how can some uh, something be the same thing when it changes over time and everything about it changes? Is there anything called reality there? Well, here, here's the verse for that. So it was a beggar died, this Lazarus, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Here, here are three people that at once were alive on the earth and had physical bodies. And the Bible talks about Lazarus and the rich man, gives them names. And they die. Now they're just spirits. And what are they? Who are they? Well, they're the same thing they were when they were on the earth. Their body's in the tomb, but it's the same person. It's still Lazarus. He's over in, in paradise. It's still the rich man. And he tells him, son... Abraham says, son, remember when you were on the earth, such and such. Same person. Time has gone by. The body's been destroyed. Everything's changed. But it's the same person. So the Bible answers this kind of metaphysical question clearly in many places all throughout the Bible. Is the physical universe all that there is? Science says yes. It's based on that. The Bible says no. As we look not to the things which are seen, but to the things which are unseen. For the things which are transient or seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4.18 The Bible acknowledges two different worlds. One seen, one unseen. One transient, physical. One spiritual and eternal. And one you can see and one you can't. This is extremely critically important for human flourishing and human development, this idea. Uh, is morality subjective or objective? Is there an objective, true, right and wrong out there? I know that some things are right depending on the circumstances. I understand that, and the Bible does too. But is there a true morality that some things are always right always and always wrong? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul goes on from there, but he says, yes, there is a true objective morality that we will be judged by on the judgment day. We'll be judged according to what we have done, meaning that we'll be judged according to the standard that God set compared to what we have done in our life. Now, it doesn't take a genius or an educated person to understand the importance of that. Now, that's our invitation today, since time is short. That verse ought to make you afraid. It makes, it makes me afraid to know that I will be judged for what I have done, whether good or bad, at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the good part is Christ is loving and fair, and I'm his, chi- I'm his brother and I'm God's child. The bad part is me. Okay. How I've lived. Now, the Bible talks about that at length and promises forgiveness and cleanness if you follow Christ. We're going to close and sing this song that we, uh, Gary selected this morning, um, as an invitation to you to think about that. And if you need to respond to the invitation of Christ, we're not talking about philosophical questions here. We're talking about actual personal questions. We're going to sing number 31 as an encouragement to you. Is that right, number 31 here? We're going to sing that. And if we can help you this morning by praying with you if you're a Christian.
that you can receive forgiveness from God or this morning baptize you into Christ. You let someone know about that. Come to the front. We'll talk about that. And you can become a Christian today in fullness and receive forgiveness this very hour. Can we help you? Let's stand and stand.